so this morning we're going to continue our study of how to study the Bible. Up to this point, we've had a couple of lessons, one on why we study the Bible, another one how to prepare. So um, uh, we're going to get into a little bit more nuts and bolts this morning and do the actual how, uh, although there will be some interpretive theory in there as well. So uh, we started off with why we study the Bible. Uh, obviously, the Christian faith is based on a number of foundational beliefs. Uh, think about statements of who God is, who Jesus is, the nature of the Trinity, how salvation works, and so on. And we find these captured in systematic theologies. We have catechisms. We have statements of faith. But all of these foundational beliefs have their own foundation. They're all interpretations from an original source. That foundation, that original source, of course, is the Bible. We as Christians believe that the Bible is God's self-revelation to mankind. It was uniquely, verbally, and fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's how we learn about the one true God, what his plan of salvation is, and how we grow closer to him. So it's clear then that the Bible should be central in a Christian's life. But what does that mean practically? Knowledge of the facts about the Bible are of no use unless they can be understood and used in the reality of everyday life. This equipping class is assuming that Christians are to make the Bible an essential part of their lives if we are to remain true to our faith, holy in our thoughts and actions, and fruitful in the application of its commands. The Bible must be at the foundation of everything we think and do. And I assure you, it is sufficient to do all of this. You may have heard inerrancy and sufficient weaved into something I said there. We'll talk about that more in a bit. <clears throat> As an encouragement, let's look at what the Bible itself says about its own effectiveness in a believer's life. Psalm 119, 105, and 130 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Again, one, Psalm 119, 33, 34. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. And of course, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, um, comprehensive, is it not? So in the first lesson, Jacob established that our desires our love for God and others will be formed and informed by what we know of God in his word. Therefore, the reading, studying, and application of the Bible must be the ongoing task of any believer. Second lesson, we uh, learned how to prepare. Um, Andrew did a great job of uh, giving us some encouragement on how to prepare. And first of all said that we must be humble and remember our dependence on the Holy Spirit for understanding. We must be ready for action to live out what we learn. We must be faithful in prayer. Prayer for desire to read God's word, to understand God's word, to behold God's glory in his word. In humility, we should ask for God to align us to his purposes. We lay aside our own assumptions, our own agendas. We don't come to Scripture with those. We just come to God's truth and let it shine through. And we also pray for the strength to obey so that fruit is born from God's Word and as, it live, as it's lived out in our life. Also, at the end, Andrew led us in a practical lesson about reading and observation, sort of reading 2.0, as it were, um, is it gave us a general orientation about uh, gaining that familiarity with the immediate passage. And that's a great jumping off point for more in-depth study. Some of you may have heard of what he introduced something as inductive study. 
I consider that to be more of sort of, like I said, reading 2.0. Uh, what we're going to cover more practically in the remaining uh, classes in this study will be some more in-depth study, Bible study techniques. So, as I said, it's time now to get into some of the details of how we study. So the next five lessons will get in some of the nuts and bolts of practical Bible study. Once again, we'll turn to Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. It commands to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This command begs a couple of questions. How is it that we can be diligent? How can we rightly divide the truth? What does that mean? What does that look like? And we'll start that journey this morning, um, particularly looking at the subject of context. We're going to look at three categories of context, contextual study. We're going to look at literary context, historical context, and cultural context which all gives us a bearing on how we interpret Scripture. We're going to learn how to look at the biblical text with a more rounded perspective. Of course, you know, this is just an hour, so I'm not going to uh, cover e any of these particularly comprehensively, and I'm always happy to ask question, uh, answer questions afterwards, and uh, you can find me or any of the other elders to discuss how you can study context better, and I can point you to some resources as well. The first thing we must acknowledge is that the Bible is a literary masterpiece. God chose to give his word through an inspired revelation written by a collection of highly skilled human authors. It displays the truth about existence, the meaning of life, and God's plan in one interwoven volume. It's incredible to think that we have our ha in our hands a communication from the omniscient God. Omniscient meaning all-knowing. Excellent. And it's, a, it's an omniscient communication from omniscient God about himself and his will. An interpretive effort is needed, however, because... The Bible is a revelation from God in time. And its meaning is tied up in narratives, contexts, and languages of its human authors. We could be tempted to think that because it's written by humans, by ancient humans at that, that it's strewn with antiquated ideas and errors of understanding. This thought brings me to the subject of inspiration, the study of how truth is revealed through humans to humans. The Bible is made up of inspired words that have important meaning. God has used language to reveal his truth to us. Not our truth, just real quick. Um, <clears throat> these words were chosen by their authors but because it's inspired, therefore by God, to have a specific meaning. Until we find out what the authors meant to convey by the words they used, in the way they used them, we will not know the true meaning of the text. And people get ready with your Bibles, because I'm going to ask you to read some verses. First one, someone turned to 2 Timothy 3.16. This is where the Bible states of itself that it is inspired by God. Can somebody read 2 Timothy 3.16? Thank you. There we are. It is inspired by God. Or actually, more accurate translation, expired. He breathed it out. Um, so it's God-inspired um, but also, uh, we find someone uh, turned to 2 Peter 1.21 for me, and we'll see that uh, 
it was even though it was inspired by God, it was written down by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's hear what 2 Peter 1.21 has to say about that. All right. So we see that uh, cooperation, in a sense, of men obeying God in the writing of Scripture, but doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> For the sake of this class we're going to assume what's known as the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. I was going to go and give you like a compare and contrast, but I don't have the time of all the different theories of inspiration. That would have taken quite a while. Um, but we can maybe talk about that another time. <clears throat> verbal plenary inspiration says that human writers of the Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in a style that included their individual backgrounds, their personal traits, and literary styles, but also that God preserved the integrity of the individual words of the Bible. The result of this kind of inspiration is that the Spirit moved the authors to write exactly the words God wanted. They had been providentially prepared by God for use as his instrument in producing Scripture. I believe that this view most closely reflects the, those biblical passages on the subject that we just read and also makes the most logical sense because once fallible man becomes the judge of which words should and shouldn't be included in a translation, the whole process becomes immediately flawed. This is why study of the original words in the original language is so important. By doing this, we preserve the understanding of the meaning of each individual word that God inspired the authors to write down. Again, we're not going to go too far into that, but um, there are other theories um, as well, sort of dynamic inspiration type theories, but we won't go into those at the moment. We'll just assume this one. <clears throat> All right. So to uh, humankind, the search for truth has always been an important pursuit. But in the Bible, our search for truth ends in this lifetime. It is the truth revealed in holy literature. All importantly, of course, it starts with God. The authority of the Bible comes from God. He is the creator of everything, not just the universe, and all it contains, okay, that's just things, right? He also created all morals, all ethics, and all truth. It is an amazing concept to think that the divine creator has graciously given us a comprehensive guide to what is true and what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what to do, what not to do, what to believe, and what to ignore. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So truth does not depend on the individual and his point of view. Truth depends on God and his point of view. We can thank God for that. Because who else but the all-knowing, limitless, almighty God could be an effective author of truth? That's how significant the statement in John 17, 17 is. It doesn't just say that God's word is true or contains the truth or contains some truth, but that it is truth. So do you want to know the truth? Then read, study, and understand the Bible. So, there's a brief uh, defense of truth. What? Let's move on a little bit more closer into context. And we'll start with something fairly simple. Um, in a certain sense, in one sense, we just talked about how the Bible is unique. But in one sense, it's no different from any other piece of literature. In that it only has meaning in context. For example, we don't go to a novel and we pick out a sentence and use it to mean something outside of the author's overall story. 
We don't seek to understand this one sentence out of the context of the novel's story arc. We don't read the line at the beginning of the Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, without reading on to find out why it was the best of times and the worst of times. You know, in that, in that Dickens, famous Dickens novel. Um, so why is that any different with Scripture? So in this sense, standard rules apply. Each biblical word, verse, and chapter is surrounded by other verses and chapters that help explain its meaning. Verses taken out of their immediate context can be, underst- can be understood to mean something completely alien to what was originally intended. It's vital to read a word in light of a sentence, sentence in light of a paragraph, paragraph in light of a chapter, chapter in light of a book, book in light of a testament, and testament in light of the whole Bible. This is what's referred to liter- as literary context. I just happened to notice there's this book down here. I don't know how long it's been here. It's just sitting there under there. And it's called Promises, a guide, daily guide to supernatural living. And each page has one verse at the top, completely out of context. And then there's some sort of thing underneath it, which is a blessed thought on the out of context verse above. This is what I'm talking about. Sorry, Bill Bright. No, it was a great prop. (laughs) So starting off with words, um, just as in the English literature, the meaning of each individual word in the Bible is greatly influenced by the other words around it. Uh, Think about John 3.16, where it says, God so loved the world. What does the word world mean? Does it mean the planet Earth, literally? Is it God's literal creation, perhaps? Is it the people in the world? Is it all the people in the world? What does world mean here? Maybe it means some people in the world. I don't know. But what you'd have to do is read the rest of the verse and continue into verses 17 and 18, and your definition of world becomes a little bit clearer. It is more clearly the people of the world than the planet itself. I don't want to you know, take from John 3.16 some sort of pantheist belief. Um, So as you study, ask yourself if you're correctly defining a word according to its immediate context and do that search for further clarity. Also look up the words in original languages. We'll have another lesson completely about original languages. Are you doing that, Andrew, or are you Jacob? Jacob's doing that one. Good. Yeah, good for you. It's all Greek to me. All right. <laughs> so verses, verses moving on from words to verses, are often standalone sentences that are easily quoted and studied by themselves. But to gain a true interpretation of verse, it must be understood in light of the passage that surrounds it. Think about this verse, Philippians 4.13. Anyone shout it out? I can do all things that Christ who strengthens me. Uh, so it's often quoted, right, as a verse of personal empowerment. Yeah. I could write it on my shoe when I'm playing basketball. Um, but if you read it in light of the verses that surrounded it, so 10 to 14, it takes on a different meaning. In this light, it now becomes more about contentment in whatever circumstance you find yourself. All right? Um, you can go home and look at that if you want. So always be curious, explore the immediate context of a verse, and see if you gain a better understanding um, when you look at those things around it. It can easily be misused, misquoted. They call it proof texting when you just yoink it out of its context. Uh, Try not to do that. And then passages of the Bible. Um, So in our modern Bible, we have it broken out into nice, helpful passages and and sections, and sometimes they have little titles above it, and these can be helpful, but sometimes it can't. Sometimes it's actually uh, a little misleading. So, 
For example, look at the, if you look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible for 1 Corinthians 11, 17, 26, it has a title that says, The Lord's Supper. And so you might go there and find out some instructions about the Lord's Supper, right? But then it's broken out. Verses 27 to 34 has another section called self-examination. Um, so you might just go to the first section because it's nice, clearly marked out in your Bible, this passage about the Lord's Supper, and then not go further into the self-examination bit. But there's some important instructions about the Lord's Supper in the self-examination piece. So you've got to be a little bit careful about um, those, those, how those passages are broken up. Um, so make sure you continue to read, even if the passages are broken out like that. You'll notice that the ESV is more accurate and does not have that break between the Lord's Supper and the self-examination piece. So just an example. So um, even if you are focused on one particular passage, because Bible study, you probably want to try and keep focused on smaller passages if you're going really in-depth, you still need to read either side to gain that better context. Um, and then chapters. Um, did you know that the Bible did not originally have chapters and verses in there at all? Okay, who, who can guess for me when... Chapters and verses were first introduced into English translations. Any? Hmm? Uh, when was that? When was the printing press? 14, 15? Okay. Oh, it was actually uh, 1560 AD. It was the first instance of chapters and verses in the English translation. And it was just simply put in there to help with referencing and reading and studying just kind of break it up a little bit. <clears throat> so the original authors of the histories and prophecies and letters contained in the Bible had no thought of their division into chapters. Um, and many of them expected readers or hearers to read and hear their writings in their entirety. They were meant to be read straight out. Just read the whole thing. If you remember, there's a lower literacy in those days. And most of the times it was memorized. It's written to be memorized, um, and so actually having sort of a parchment and reading it out um, was you know, many for rich people, and poorer people had to memorize and keep repeating it to each other and so on. There may be sort of one book in the corner of the city that you could go and reference every now and then, but generally, read the whole thing, memorize the whole thing. Um, so you should always read a chapter in light of the theme of the whole book. You can then see how the chapter links with the rest of the message from the author and how the texts support the overall theme of the book. All right. Books of the Bible don't stand alone either. They're contained within their, in their testament, old and new, and of course within the whole canon of Scripture. Um, I would say read an entire book in one sitting, if, even if you're just studying one passage. Just go ahead, read the whole book as well. Um, so you can ask yourself some questions. Was the book written to explain an important part of Israel's history? To elaborate on a God-given covenant? To prophesy events past, present, future? Um, some people say the Gospels are the most important part of the Bible. Ooh, yes, just read the Gospels, Red Letters of Christ. Um, or maybe the epistles of Paul are the most important, or the first five books, the Pentateuch. But really, they're all just as important as each other. Together, they form the whole counsel, the whole revelation of God to man. Uh, so don't take books by themselves, necessarily. <clears throat> and then, of course, testaments. You've got Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament covers creation, God's covenants with Israel. Recursive elaboration of God's plan of salvation to mankind, and it predicts the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament describes the coming of the Messiah, his establishment of the church, and, his, and the predictions of his second coming, although there's some of those in the Old Testament too. <clears throat> so together again, they form the whole counsel of God. They can't stand without each other, the Old and New Testaments. One's not more important than the other. They should always be read in light of one another. The Old Testament points forward to the new, and the new points back to the old. 
um, what will become really apparent to you, if you have a good cross-reference tool in your, in your Bible, you'll see how absolutely intermingled the messages of the two, two Testaments are. They will point backwards and forwards interweave. That's another good Bible study tool. It's a good cross-reference cross Bible. <clears throat> and then finally, remember, the Bible itself is one whole story. And we'll look a little bit more into biblical theology next lesson. Um, so remember, if I repeat something, it's when you study, read a word in light of a sentence, sentence in light of a paragraph, paragraph in light of the chapter, chapter in light of the book, book in light of the testament, and testament in light of the whole Bible. Okay? doesn't mean you have to read the whole Bible every time you study a little passage, but bear it in mind. <clears throat> okay. Now we move on to, that was a look at the, how the standard rules apply. Let's move on to literary genres. Genre in the French. Did you know that the Bible is an anthology? It has multiple authors, about three dozen. Um, and it's a collection of writings. Amazingly, though, it's still comprehensive and cohesive. It is many stories that tell one story. Because of its diversity, it does have multiple literary genres, though. Let's look at these now and take some notes about how they differ, how they change how we interpret the text. You'll notice how the existence of these genres and how they work prove the earlier point that the biblical authors are literary geniuses. So think about that. First one we're going to look at is the historical narrative. Someone shout out a couple of historical narrative books in the Bible. Chronicles. Acts. All right, good. About kings, um, some of the first books, relate history. Um, <clears throat> you would think, would you not, that if someone was to give you a religious text, it would be about dogma and rules. <laughs> Follow these things. It will make God happy. <clears throat> Yet, a substantial part of the Bible is history. It's not those rules. Why is that? Well, it's because the Christian faith is all about things that happened in real life. In fact, if specific historical events didn't happen, the whole thing falls apart. Christi Christianity isn't just a philosophy. It's faith based on history. So we believe that Jesus was a real man in time and in space. Even though he's not limited by those realities, he did actually live on earth at a certain time. He was born, he lived, he died, was resurrected. And these things are all historical facts. If any of these facts are found to be untrue, the Christian religion would no longer be valid. Paul explicitly says this in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. Without the, fact, the historical fact of the resurrection, the whole thing falls apart. Also, the Bible is a historical record of God's dealing with his people and his covenants with them. He doesn't just simply tell what's happened. God tells us why it happened. The event's important to the grand storyline of redemption history. Heilsgeschichte. That means salvation history in German. And some people will say it to be really impressive. Like, I've read German Oh, yes, I've read German uh, theologians, so I can say Heilsgeschichte. <clears throat> Just like I did. <sighs> so how should we read and profit from narrative history in the Bible? Biblical histories and narratives are a rich source of study that display God's faithfulness to his people and his unchanging nature. This genre, however, is not intended to record and explain every detail of every event. It doesn't um, present events simply for us to mimic its characters, like, oh, this person did this thing, let me do the same thing. That would be absolutely disastrous. Instead, historical narratives provide us with what's necessary to study and understand the great grand narrative of Scripture, which is God saving his people 
and judging his enemies through Jesus Christ. Same pattern all the way through. That's the big plan. So that's what narrative illustrates to us. Uh, another genre, poetry and wisdom. These are, I've lumped these together. They're not exactly the same, but I'll explain why. Someone show me, tell me some poetry and wisdom books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> so these books largely have elements of poetic structure and contain much in the way of what we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is essentially instructions for successful living or even potentially uh, reflections on the reality of humans' existence. So there's, broadly speaking, two types of wisdom literature. There's proverbial wisdom. These are short, pithy sayings that state rules for personal happiness and welfare based on what's been observed by wise people. Proverbs, obviously, an excellent example. Then there's speculative wisdom. These tend to be monologues, like in Ecclesiastes, or dialogues, like in Job. And they try and delve into problems like the meaning of existence, what's the actual relationship between God and man, and the comparison there. Um, but wisdom literature contains both the moral substance of true wisdom and the intellectual explorations of wise men seeking to understand the fundamental problems of human existence. That's why I like Ecclesiastes so much, because it really gets the root of why we're all here and doing what we're doing. What about poetic literature? We just kind of talked about wisdom very briefly. Um, but much of the Old Testament is poetic in spirit and structure. In structure. We often find passages of elevated poetry and the use of powerful imagery. The Hebrew language is actually an ideal instrument for expressing poetic speech. Its simplicity of form allowed for combined intensity of feeling and pictorial power. And uh, the authors could display a great deal of imagination with it. Um, so there's a couple, just a couple pointers to watch for in poetry. You'll notice that figures and metaphors and hyperboles are extremely common. Like look at Psalm 91, for example. And the, the normal unit of Hebrew verse is a couplet of two or more parallel lines. Think of Psalm 27, verse 1. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Sounded a little bit like Christopher Walking then. That was weird. The Lord is my light. <laughs> anyway, I was trying to give a poetic rhythm for you. <laughs> but why do we use poetry at all? Why not just a straight, say it straight out? Like, I'm sort of a logical chap. I'm like, you know, just say it straight. Why do we have to use poetry? And I'm actually convinced myself by writing this that I kind of like poetry in the Bible. Um... And that's because it conveys a greater meaning beyond just simple facts. Uh, let me just say a statement, like I would have said it in a logical way. Jesus Christ, who never sinned, died for sinners to pay the penalty they deserved. Right? True statement, right? You understood what I said. Pretty straightforward. Well, look at Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So, in my, my straight out statement doesn't come close to the perfect word of God. The imagery conveys feeling, something tangible, something vivid and haunting. Something worth remembering. And yet it still has that same truth in it. Right? Think about the Psalms. They're meant to be used for the purpose of worship. They're even meant to be sung with musical accompaniment. Um, many are private prayers. Others are composed for public worship. Hymns of thanksgiving. Um, but it's in the Psalms that the soaring spirit of Hebrew poetry rises to a level, level never achieved by Israel's pagan neighbors. If you read some of their stuff, it's nowhere near. The Hebrew worship the God, God, our God in spirit and truth. 
And as he did so, he was giving expression to a personal experience of the living God in his soul, the writer of Psalms. For the sake of time, I'm going to list some of the other genres. I'm not going to go into as much detail. Um, But again, as this is a brief overview, anytime you guys want to talk more about this or how to read a genre a certain way, I'm happy to talk. Afterwards, we've got the prophetic genre. Um, Huge sections, obviously, of the Old Testament are prophecy. Uh, They're predicting events that in the contemporaries' time, a little bit later on, or even ultimately, obviously, towards Christ's first coming and second coming, all wrapped into prophecy as a genre. So look for not just immediate fulfillments, but uh, ultimate fulfillments as well in prophetic genres. Apocalyptic uh, literature is highly symbolic. It can give us clues towards eschatological events, end times type things. Um, second, first and second coming of Christ, obviously in there. Gospels. Gospels is another genre. Very u- distinct and unique uh, way of communicating history in the Gospels. They're actually called, uh, in ancient um, literature, they're called bios. Um, it's like an ancient biography. It's not the same kind of uh, biography as a modern biography, like they trace physical, psychological, and personal development. They usually focused on key events of a person's life and teaching. So Gospels are a little different in that way. Um, Notice Gospels are not always arranged chronologically. Sometimes they're arranged topically. Mark tells of five controversies in a row that are spread out in several chapters in Matthew. So set up different way. Um, they're not written like 21st histories in that chronological, clear way. They're often are written, the Gospels are written to make a specific point. But the main point of Gospels, of course, is that Jesus is the promised Messiah who died for our sins. And they're typically divided into two groups. What are the two groups of Gospels? Anyone know? Synoptic and John. All right? Yeah. So the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, The synoptics are more uh, from the ground up, from a human perspective, giving evidence to a specific target audience that Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew is more to a Jewish audience, for example. And then John is more sort of from a, from a heaven-down perspective of who Jesus was. Um, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. You know, it's kind of looking at who he was um, from God, God's eye view, as it were. Acts is kind of unique because it's historical, but it's a continuation of the gospel. Um, so the establishment of the church. It's not often prescriptive. It's more descriptive of the church. So you've got to be careful there, how you look at it. And then, of course, a massive piece of New Testament is epistles. Um, a lot of letters in there. An epistle just means letter. Uh, 21 out of the 27 New Testament books are epistles. So this is a big one to understand. Um, And the audience and the issues vary widely, depending on the letter. Often, uh, the thought of a letter is to address a specific issue within a specific church. And we'll talk next lesson a bit more about um, authorial intent and uh, the recipient's perspective of receiving that letter and how we need to understand that. All right. One thing I am going to circle over just for a second about epistles, uh, besides the brief overview of what I've just said, is, and this is not greatly widely known, but one of the helpful pieces of knowledge you might have in interpreting the epistle is 
yes, it's a letter addressing a specific issue, but often the uh, New Testament authors, particularly Paul, obviously, is that he uses first century rhetoric to write his epistles. And it's a style of writing that aids in structure and it aids in memorization. Because if you remember, again, a lot of these were spoken out loud. And so he structures them in a way in which uh, the first century mind would have received information and memorized it. Um, There's good evidence that Paul was instructed in the use of Asiatic rhetoric. Um, and they used lots of uh, rhetorical devices like hyperbole, um, you know, emphasizing something extreme. Uh, Evidence, of course, that Matthew and John also were trained in rhetoric, like um, Matthew 5.27, if I cause you to stumble, gouge it out. You know, that doesn't literally mean gouge it out. In making a hyperbolic point, Um, usually... In this style of writing, you know, black is very black, white is very white, um, light and dark are compared, sin, righteousness, good, evil. Paul uses it to contrast between law and grace, uh, the spirit and the flesh, the old man, the new man. This sort of comparative, comparative um, hyperbole is used frequently. So we've got to be careful not to take the polarizations too literally because they're to make a point, right? Um, like, for example, the contrast between law and grace, uh, there's still room to see that the law is not all bad, you know? It still has a purpose for it, um, to bring the sinner to Christ. Another potential use of Asiatic rhetoric is personification. I think many people misread Romans 7 because they don't know about this, because actually in this passage, Paul is taking on the person of Adam to make his point about how in Adam all died, but in Christ all are made alive. And perhaps if we don't understand that rhetorical point, we can misinterpret the passage as referring to Paul himself. And this can lead to all different kinds of theological difficulties. Uh, I've listed in your outline, actually, if you want more reading on uh, the rhetoric of the New Testament, there's a book there by Ben Witherington, which is, could be helpful for you. It's a little... Scholarly, but pretty interesting. Okay. So again, next thing I'm going to go on to, if that was literary context, we're going to briefly look at historical and cultural context. The reason I'm going to do this briefly and more of as an overview is because it's such a vast subject. I really just want this to be an introduction. Um, So this whole thing can be, uh, historical and cultural context can be lumped into something called life setting. These are different, again, just different ways to look at context. So scholars, again, refer to historical and cultural context as one thing called sitz im Leben. There's that German chap coming in and like, oh, yes, I'm smoking my pipe and I'm saying sitz im Leben. But it really just means life setting, okay? Very simple. Where, where the people are when they wrote and received scripture, you have to think about that. Um, so we must take into account the original context of the authors and people in biblical times. And that really helps us truly get an accurate sense what the Bible meant in its own time. Uh, see, I could tell you, you ready? I could tell you, don't have a Barney, just have a Butchers for the Wiley Stoat, and North the Wiser over. But you wouldn't have the foggiest about what I'm saying until I translated it for you, right? You want that again? <clears throat> but you'd even, you, even if I translated that for you from, you know, where it's from and told you what it literally means you would have an even better understanding of what I said and what it meant to you to, if I'd have said it in its original setting, uh, if I explained the history of East London Cockney and how rhyming slang works, um, suddenly that sentence, would, you'd have a great understanding of it. Whereas just on the face of it, you'd have no idea what I'm talking about. So again, the study of historical cultural context kind of peels back those layers to get to what they originally understood. 
I'm not going to tell you what it means. <laughs> Just to make my point, because now you can be sitting there like, and we should do that about scripture in study. We should sit there and go, what, what does this really mean? I am curious. So uh, historical context refers to the events that are taking place historically that affect our understanding of what's going on around the events and people of the Bible at the time of writing. The Bible records history and tells us the story of the descendants of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Israel. It gives us eyewitness account of life of Jesus, the beginnings of the church in the first century AD. But have you ever asked what other historical events are taking place around the people of the Bible and how that affects what is happening, what is being said, what is being predicted, what is coming true? There are other ex external historical writings that we can study that will add to the overall picture of biblical events. What was happening in Egypt at the time of the Exodus? How did the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest shape the circumstances leading up to the exile? How did Roman expansion and oppression affect the political landscape in the first century Palestine? How did established trade routes assist in the spread of the gospel and all those churches that are in strategic places that are all mentioned? <clears throat> we can look at other historians that recorded information that corroborates the biblical account and sheds light that can aid our understanding of scriptural context. A good knowledge of history during biblical times can add much to our ability to interpret the text. That is not to say that without historical context, you cannot understand the Bible. It is to say that without it, your understanding may remain fairly simple. Now that's okay, but I would remind us Author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, as he tries to explain the order of Melchizedek, he said, I'd like to say a lot more about Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain. You've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So beyond the added depths that historical context um, gives you in knowledge and understanding the scripture, it will open up your eyes to something else. It will show you the incredible providence and sovereignty of God in all of human history to orchestrate men and events toward his will. Uh, for this kind of study, you can use Bible handbooks, you can use commentaries, even secular history books can be in some way helpful to increase your knowledge of historical context. And again, we will have a lesson solely dedicated to the tools of study. Who's doing that one? Andrew's doing that one. Sweet. He won't be using that book down there. <clears throat> well, you might, as an illustration. <clears throat> All right, so a brief overview of historical context. Hopefully I've given you a sense of why that's useful. Uh, and finally, in our last few minutes, we'll, look about, we'll talk about cultural context. Cultural context refers to the customary beliefs and social forms that made up life and experience during biblical times. The people of the Bible lived in an entirely different culture than we do. First, we must understand what a passage written to them meant to them, as they were the original recipients. Only then can we fully understand what it means to us. The Bible spans many cultures, including a Jewish culture, ancient Jewish culture, ancient Egyptian culture, ancient Canaanite culture, Babylonian culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, and so on. Lots of different cultures all have bearing. They sometimes have that unique bearing that gives us insight into the cultural context. The biblical authors could also only use examples to speak to issues that were relevant in their time period. They didn't know anything else, right? So these contemporary examples are scattered throughout the Bible, and some of them are still familiar to us. Think about how the Bible refers to shepherds, 
vineyards, oxen, agriculture, all of these are, uh, were familiar to them and somewhat familiar to us. And, but they're great illustrations, illustrations of spiritual truth. But there are other references that we may think we're familiar with, but we're actually bringing our own modern understanding to them when we try and interpret. And this is can, can be dangerous. For example, if you notice a reference to a wedding ceremony, we might think of the 21st century practice of, you know, a few brief exchange of vows, maybe the waves on the beach behind and, you know, nice things. Um, I haven't been to one for a while. What else do they do? I don't know. Uh, i tell you what they didn't do is the things they did in an ancient Jewish wedding ceremony. Um, some of those things are uh, extremely complex and have many me meaningful pieces of them, which the biblical authors refer to. So we have to be aware of what they're specifically referring to and seek not to be ignorant of those because that ignorance can cause a lot of confusion and poor interpretation because they no longer exist in our culture. We think differently, speak differently, live differently. We cannot assume that a passage immediately applies in our own situation if we haven't found out what it meant to the ancient person situation. It's our job as a good interpreter to study these cultural differences and comprehend how they affect the meaning of the text. Real quick, I'm going to do just a very brief example, just to illustrate this to you. If you would turn your Bibles to Exodus 23, with one finger put Exodus 23:19, with your other finger put it in Deuteronomy 14, verse 21. So Exodus 23:19 and Deuteronomy 14:21. And really, on the ex both these passages, both these verses, I just want you to read the second part of the verse. Uh, they should say the same thing when you get there. Uh, so 2319b and Deuteronomy 1421b. So anyone read that out? All right. And then Deuteronomy 1421b. Sweet. I won't do it. I'm never going to do that. Said it twice. Uh, so that's that off my plate. So uh, any ideas of what that might mean to us today? Um, how, does it help to read the verses before and after? You know, that literary context thing. Have a quick, I'm not going to let you read it out, make you read it out, but just briefly read. Is there any context that helps with that before and after that? There isn't. I, I'm, I looked. So the immediate literary context doesn't help. So what do we do with that weird thing? And it's repeated. It must be important, right? So now we have to dive into the historical and cultural context to explain it for us because every word of Scripture is important. There's nothing in it. It's a waste of space. There's only 66 books to explain all of meaning of history and life. They're not going to waste a sentence, especially not a repeated one. So did he know that boiling a young kid in its mother's milk was a Canaanite fertility ritual? And it was equated with worshipping false idols. The passage in Exodus was spoken to the people of Israel as they're striking out toward the promised land. God wanted them to be a holy people, unblemished by the practices of, his, of its inhabitants as they entered it. He wanted them to act differently and be set apart for him passage in Deuteronomy was delivered by Moses as part of his parting speech to the Israelites, just as they were finally going to enter Canaan after 40 years of wandering. He report, repeated his warning here to stay away from evil Canaanite idol worship and keep themselves from even appearing to be indulging in them. So that's the, that's the cultural context there. Um, without the cultural context, this passage is a strange Old Testament command. It doesn't really mean anything to us. That old law no longer applies to us. We don't typically boil a kid in its mother's milk. We don't do it anyway for like eating or anything. And we certainly don't have that cult around us to compare to, do we? 
Um, but what we gather from that is that we see how important it is for, to God that his people do not act like the sinful people around them. Therefore, in a sense, we can take this advice of Moses for, our, for ourselves. We must not do anything that even looks like we are dabbling in worldly idolatry. Really, actually, I believe that these passages are repeated in the New Testament. Someone look up 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. I think this is saying the same thing in a more straightforward way. Someone read that out, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Right, thank you. So again, that same sense is that the things that we do that are separate, holy, set apart from the world around us is going to make us distinctive and better representatives of our God. Same idea. So there you go, brief look at historical and cultural context. Um, and you're probably wondering now, how on earth are we going to research all of that information and, and paint those uh, contextual pictures um, well, worry not. Later on, we will, we will talk about tools that you can use to gather some of this knowledge and augment your Bible study practices. Now, I, I did have a lot of material to go through, so I know that was more of a lecture than a back and forth. And typically, I think we finish about 10.10, right? So I have three minutes for any questions. <laughs> You can always find us later on as well. Question? Quick question? Yes, sir. Eulogy. Uh, uh, do the Gospels reflect? Yeah, I'm just repeating it for the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do the Gospels reflect uh, some ancient form of eulogy? Yeah. I haven't heard that idea. Um, I, I mean, I heard the, the bio, the idea it's sort of an ancient biography, but I, I can see what people may be saying. Eulogizing Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I'm I'm not but I mean I, I certainly would entertain the idea. It doesn't seem way off base if someone wanted to write an accurate eulogy of Christ the Messiah, one that was, of course, evangelistic in its intent. So, yeah, because you think about a funeral, when you do a, give a eulogy, a Christian eulogy, you tend to want to use that as an opportunity to preach the gospel through that person's life, a testimony of what they've done that points to Christ. So it's not without the without, out of the realm of possibility. So, Yeah. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The usefulness of the headings uh, uh, within... Our English translation. I mean, I, I mean, I do find them helpful because sometimes you just scan through and see those settings, like, oh yeah, I remember where that is. And I think that's okay. I think it's just making sure you're aware of the limitations of that, um, and just saying, okay, well, I, I do need to be aware of the immediate context as well. Um, I don't think they're harmful. 
I think the translators tried to be helpful. They weren't, didn't have bad intent. They're just trying to point you to different subjects. It's just that we just want to be careful, especially when we're doing some in-depth Bible study, that we're truly cognizant of the whole context of whatever the passage is in. So. Yeah. I mean, it could be. I mean, I'd love to see um, a, a copy of Romans that's um, broken out according to Paul's rhetorical argument. Like, with, hey, this is the Churia, this is the Syncresis, you know. That would be really helpful. I haven't seen one, but it would be good. All right, I do have to end. Thank you for the questions. Good questions, indeed. So next week we'll look at authorial intent, how we discern the divine author's intent the human author's intent, and how we can see it from the original recipient's viewpoint and how that bears on our interpretation. So that's, that's well, not next week, actually. It is, yes, the 9th of January. There is no class on the 26th or the 2nd because of those previous aforementioned events. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Villages, I do thank you again for your word. Uh, may we make it a central pillar uh, to the way which we worship you. And may we seek desperately to know more of you and to learn how to apply your word in our life with the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.